Hi, everybody. Welcome to In Faith and Doubt. We're excited to introduce this new podcast to the world. Um, I'm Nijay, and I'm here with my uh, friend, AJ, AJ Swoboda. And uh, I wanted to just start this first episode out by talking about why we have a podcast. There are a trillion podcasts out there. I can't even keep up with how many good ones there are. So why should there be another one? Um, well, actually, I want to tell you the story about how this came to be. We've been working on this for a few months, but it's kind of a fun story. AJ and I have known each other for several years here in the kind of Portland, Eugene area of Oregon. And um, as we'll be talking about, AJ wrote a book called After Doubt, which is really awesome, and I encourage you to pick it up. And he asked, he kindly asked me to read the book and give him feedback. Um, I remember sitting in my office, he sent me a paper copy of the book through the publisher, and I just, I just couldn't put it down. It was captivating reading. It expressed a lot of things that I thought about for years and wondered about and wondered how I can better um, express the Christian faith, encourage the discouraged. And I had a chance to talk to AJ on the phone, and I told him, this book is life-giving in so many ways because there's a certain narrative out there in the world that you have this Christian faith, it's white picket fences, it's you know rose-colored stained glass window, beautiful, just like Jesus. And then certain things happen in life, things you experience, things you read, and all of a sudden the picture gets uglier, darker, more difficult. And then the normal narrative is um, you just start to drift away. You start to doubt. You start to question. And those things eat away at you. And um, there are people out there that tell you, yes, live into the cynicism, live into the, um, this is what's wrong with Christianity, and that's what's wrong with Christianity. And I'm reading AJ's book, and I'm thinking, um, Christian faith is a lot like marriage. And I'll tell you a funny story. My wife, God bless her, Amy, uh, is is a pastor. She's also a, a counselor, a marriage counselor. So I've been blessed with many counseling sessions throughout the years. And um, I remember very early on in our marriage, Amy turning to me and saying, Nijay, what are your goals for our marriage? And I remember turning to her and saying, marriages have goals? <laughs> And the idea behind that was I was so naive, and I didn't uh, date a whole lot before uh, Amy and I got married, and so I don't know what I expected from a marriage, but I didn't expect the challenges. And so I remember talking to AJ about this and saying, people have this idea that faith is going to be this perfect thing, and Jesus is going to solve all your problems, and all Christians are going to be perfect in all ways. And then you'll go to heaven and then, you know, play harps or whatever. Um, but this idea of doubt being normal and yet faith still being there is such a beautiful thing. And and we talked about having a podcast and calling it In Faith and Doubt because just as in a marriage or in any relationship, there are so many good and beautiful things that are possible and, and present there are also challenges and difficulties, and maybe even that's the way it should be. Not just this limitation, not just this horrible thing, 
But this is all part of what it means to be in a relationship. So I remember telling AJ, this is more than a book. What you're doing in this project, what you're doing uh, with with your teaching ministry, it's 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 more than just hey, FYI. This is something that many people need to hear. So um, I I talked to him about starting a movement. I said start a movement because there's more than one way to look at doubt and deconstruction. Many people see it as an exit to the faith. And yet there's a whole nother way of looking at it that I feel like your book and and what you work on really opens up, AJ. So I want to turn it over to you, talk a little bit about um, how you started down this road of thinking about faith and doubt that comes to fruition in the book, but then also in this podcast, which we're, we hope will go on for a long time. We have a lot planned in the future, but I'm going to turn it over to AJ, talk a little bit about um, where, where all this started. I love it. Um, Nijay, first, what a joy to be with you. And this venture, this adventure that um, that God has sort of invited us on uh, gets me v- very excited. I know it does for you as well. Um, yeah, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're both academics. We both teach. Um, we both teach a variety of subjects. We both are, you know, scholars in our field. Um, I'm a theologian. You're a Bible scholar, New Testament guy. Um, for me, um, there's this last 20, 20 years of my life has been devoted to serving um, the spiritual journeys, the Christian journeys of, of all these people that are going through transition, per, primarily college students and post-college students. And in that, you know, t- 10 years of being a college pastor, 10 years of being a church planner in Portland, and the last number of years being uh, an academic, um, you know, when you do something long enough, you start seeing trends. You start seeing things that happen over and over and over again. And th- this, in particular, this book, After Doubt, is the response to um, me not being able to have enough fingers and toes to count these deconstruction stories, these stories of doubt, w- that eventually end in somebody assuming, because they have doubt or struggles with their faith, that they're done, that this somehow becomes the sign that they are done. Um, you know, back to this marriage metaphor. Um, if I were... If I were a marriage counselor and sat down with two people who were about to get married and asked them to walk me through the last few arguments they've had, and they said, we've never had any arguments, I would say, don't you dare get married. And that, that actually the sign that you've got a healthy marriage is you've got issues and because you talk about it and you wrestle with it and it's not easy. Um, the, sign of the, un, the, the sign of the most unhealthy relationship. Is a is a is a relationship a marriage that doesn't have any issues? Um, the the primary story actually for me is a story of a young man. I've I've renamed homage to a friend named Phil uh, in Portland, but it's a, a a story about a young man who moved to Portland uh, from kind of middle America, conservative Christian home, uh, deep piety for Jesus, loved the church, moved to Portland, got a software gig uh, in Portland, moved to Portland, and within. You know, he so he emails me, finds the name of the church, the gods of Google, uh, get kind of tell tell him a, a church, our church. He comes, he emails, says, "I want to meet for coffee." We have this beautiful conversation. He wants to serve Jesus. He wants to be a part of the city. He wants to be on mission. He wants to serve the church. We sit in my office. We have this great conversation. You know, as a pastor at the time, serving uh, this congregation, and and he is so jazzed. And we say goodbye. I'm so excited. We got this young guy who's going to you know, be a part of our community. And a year later, he's sitting in the same seat 
in my office and um, tells me he doesn't think he's a Christian anymore. And he narrates the story. I mean, the story is this classic story. He moved to Oregon from middle America, moved to Oregon with passion, excitement, and over the course of one year, um, in one single year, had completely deconstructed this faith that he had been instilled with his entire journey, his entire life. And having walked with people who have gone through, through that journey hundreds of times now, I mean, it's, it, it's, it, there is such a predictable set of patterns. This is not something that happens from time to time. There is a system at play, a deconstruction system, a, a sort of system that really so few Christians know how to walk through. And so we've got Christians, um, we've got people of faith who love Jesus with their whole heart, who don't grasp, let me put it this way, who have never been handed a vision of faithful discipleship to Jesus that includes what in the world you do in doubt. It has become this almost unknown Siberia of a land (laughs) that if you're walking through it, somehow you are unique and different. And I am at the point now, and I suspect, Nija, you're in the same place, that when you have young people who are walking through deconstruction and doubt, who have these profound questions about their faith and about the Bible— that when they have these questions, they think they're the first people in human history to ask these questions. You know, that, that, that you know, these questions about is the Bible, that, you know, you watch some YouTube video and you find out something about the Bible you never knew and you go, well, what do I do with that if the Bible is inspired? How in the world? And we think like we're somehow we've got the edge on this market of these emerging questions failing to recognize we have 2000 years of history of people who have wrestled with this stuff, but we just don't know. We're unaware of. Let me let me ask you this, AJ, because as you're talking, I'm thinking when this happens so often to so many people, this disillusionment um, and the assumption that Christian life was going to be easy, simple, and all put together, how did this happen? Because at some point, someone's telling them or, or giving con- convincing them from the start yes. that this was going to be easy. Same thing with relationships. You know, how, how do we get the impression they're going to be easy? Do you have any thoughts on... Uh, what are we doing wrong on the front end? On the front end yeah. of not telling people, preparing people for this. Yeah, I, you know, part of part of um, part of this part of this 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 journey is is recognizing that in our effort to help people follow Jesus, um, conversion to Jesus or whatever, that often we minimize the difficulties of the life of pursuit of Jesus because we want people to get in. You know, we and so we sort of create. You know, it's, it's like it's like a church. You know this, a church that does like a welcome class. Um, and you do a welcome class, and essentially what you're doing is you're selling the church. You're saying, these are the reasons you should come here. And what I found in 10 years of <laughs> pastoral ministry, that actually when you have a welcome class and you, and you give them all the reasons why they shouldn't come to your church, all the things that are wrong with it, all the reasons why it's going to be horrible, difficult, all, it is the most counterintuitive thing. When people are told on the front end how hard it's going to be, the more they want it. We, I don't know what it is, but on the front end, I think we have watered down the difficulties of the Christian faith in an effort to get people in. And then they get in and they realize, oh my goodness gracious, I can trust Jesus and I still get cancer. 
There, it seems like there, there's some kind of fear there that if we tell the truth, the gospel's not powerful enough to still compel them. Mm, mm. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a story that you just made me think of. Um, so my daughter, as you know, AJ, had cancer when she was young. Uh, she's fine now. She's cancer-free. God bless uh, our doctors. But um, I remember, and we'll talk about this probably in another episode, but I remember when we... Uh, when you're when when a family member, especially a child of yours, gets cancer, you obviously have a long sit down with the oncologist, and they hand you this massive binder. Hmm. I mean, gigantic binder of medical information and therapy and all kinds of stuff. And um, you're in the family now. You're in the cancer family. I mean, it is a horrible family to be in, but there's lots of people in this family. And I remember um, then they're going to be like, you're going to live on this floor with your daughter for a few weeks. It's called induction. She had um, leukemia. And, uh, you know, a lot of that time was a blur, but I remember a nurse showing us around and she said to us, um, there are dozens of people on this floor, all, all children, pediatric oncology. There are dozens of people on this floor. Some people have it better and some people have it worse. Mm. And that's just the way it is. Mm. And there's nothing more sobering, right? And, and I remember that how many years later now, seven, eight years later now, I remember that because that's just the way life is. Mm. And it's, you know, I don't want a nurse telling me only everything's going to be fine. Yeah, uh, I don't want a nurse telling me that. I mean, obviously, you don't want, you know, to be, you know, beat over the head with really bad news all at once. But... I really appreciate her saying, don't compare. Mm. Don't compare. Some people have it better, some people have it worse. And so I love this idea that a church is just going to be warts and all. Mm. Just be like, this can get really ugly, you know? But yeah. um, but but it's 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 a powerful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's a Nije, there's there is a there's a fundamental difference um between there's a fundamental difference between trusting in God and trusting in God for stuff. You know, when we, I, I, I use this illustration to talk about that this what tr- the difference between faith and belief is. You know, faith is our orientation of trust towards God. It is this element of like I submit my trust and my life to you. I believe you, and I trust in you. Um, when you. I would say I, I, the person I trust more than anyone in my life is my wife. As a person, I trust her with all my heart. I do not trust my wife to not lose my keys. <laughs> like, I trust her, but I know there are parts of her that I can't trust. I trust in Jesus, but I do not trust God that I will not have loss. Mm. I do not trust God that I won't go through hard things. And a lot of us were handed a version of the gospel that said, you trust God for stuff. And our call is to trust God when we have cancer, when we don't, in faith and doubt. Like, we trust God no matter what. And from time to time, our faith will put us through absolutely hellish experiences. But we didn't trust God for stuff. We trust God. And the result is that we are freed. I, I, we, you hear, you hear this 
in our theology, in our worship all the time. You're never going to let, never going to let me down. Hogwash. God is going to let us down. Mm. He is going to put us through things we never wanted to go through, that we never signed up for. But we're not called to trust God for stuff. We trust God and his ultimate love beyond this temporal reign is critical. Nije, when you think about it, as you you're 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 a New Testament scholar and you you know you know the New Testament in and out. Tell me the tell me this. What is the fundamental difference between faith and beliefs? Yeah, that's a great question because we we often just equate the two. And when I talk to my students about this, I, I kind of like to paint a ridiculous picture in order to help them understand how we've been mistaught. So I like to say, imagine you go to the pearly gates after you die, and St. Peter or whoever is there, and they just have a clipboard with a checklist. Trinity, virgin birth, third day resurrection, you know, whatever it is. Um, You know, and as long as you check every single box, then, you know, he hits the button and the pearly gates open and you go in and live in bliss. Um, That's not how it works at all. Because then it's all about um, kind of a formula. And the Bible resists formulas. Um, The Bible resists anything that uh, makes it something we can control. What the Bible does with faith language is it centers it on a relationship. It centers it on a person, Jesus Christ. The analogy I like to give to clarify what that means, because it's about surrender. It's about giving up. And when we make it about beliefs, beliefs are something we acquire. Beliefs are something we master. Beliefs are something we get PhDs in. Beliefs are something we fight and argue over. But I I like to express it this way. When I go to the airport with my family on a trip, um, you know, flying, let's say, from Oregon PDX, best airport in the country, Preach it. to um, Ohio, where my family, where my parents live. Um, I have a, I have identification. My wife has identification, but my kids don't. When they're in the airport, from a legal standpoint, they're nobody. Mm-hmm. The, my job is to give my ID and get through all the checkpoints and whatever. Their job is to cling to me. They have no identity. They have nothing apart from me. And um, in a, it's very similar to faith language in the Bible in the sense that faith is not about collecting something. Faith is this death grip on Jesus mm. to say, take me with you. <laughs> wherever you, yeah. wherever he goes, I go. That's from Mandalorian, by the way. Um, but it's, it's, it's he that. He has spoken. He has spoken. Right. That's right. Um Faith is faith is a relational term. So I, you know, I wrote a book called Paul in the Language of Faith uh, a couple years ago. It's COVID's been so long. Mm-hmm. I don't remember when it was published. Maybe it was like last month, and it feels like ten years ago. But um, and what I discovered in my research for that was um, the language of faith, which in Greek is pistis, is really the language of relational concord. It's it's two people turning towards one another like a covenant. Mm-hmm with both goodwill and obligation. Hmm. And what's funny about our Christian life is, like you were kind of saying, we expect the goodwill, which is gimme, gimme, gimme. But are we expecting the obligation? 
And whenever you have a relationship of goodwill and obligation, you want to create something that's going to weather storms, like marriages. But but you see this in, in biblical discourse in like military situations. You want someone who's got your back. Why? Because you know you're going to be facing storms. And so faith faith is more important in a sense, or at least it's the higher category than beliefs, because our beliefs will struggle. But if we're clinging to God, then that's what faith is all about. And yes. that's that's what Jesus is all about. And to, to add to that, so there's a, there's a sort of growing sense that if it is about faith and relationship, I can hear somebody saying, well, then beliefs don't matter, which of course is not the case. Beliefs actually matter greatly. Um, I love my wife with all my heart. I have tremendous faith in my wife. I love her. But part of the way I express my faith and love in my wife is in 17 years, I've gone out of my way to learn about her and how I can love her. And the truth of the matter is beliefs matter tremendously, but beliefs are not the same as faith. Would you say this is fair, Nijay? I won't go to hell for having all all the perfect... I, I don't need all the police to go. I won't go to hell for having wrong beliefs, but I'll probably go through it. <laughs> and that is that 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 the experience of actually having wrong ideas of God is going to make my relationship really, really hard. Because if I believed my wife were having an affair, it's hard to have intimacy. But if she wasn't, if I wrongly believed that, wrong beliefs can actually really impact our faith, can't they? And this is where you're getting to the heart of the issue. We sometimes make beliefs about something we put in our pocket for a rainy day. It's not something we use. It's just something that sort of just sits there waiting for heaven. Um, you know, I, I like to say talking about Christian faith is not the same thing as talking about whether aliens exist or not. If, if let's say you think they do and I think they don't, those are beliefs. They're not beliefs that make a whole lot of difference in our day-to-day life, like where we buy coffee, who we're friends with, what charities we give to, what does our checkbook look like? Oh, unless you're really weird and you give to a lot of weird conspiracy websites. But, you know, what you're basically saying there, I'm going to flesh it out, is um, when the Bible talks about the importance of faith, it's about how how we see reality, how we see uh the big questions of life, God, world, work, suffering, hope, eternity, how those things actually affect how we live in the world. And a a text like James is going to talk about how we shouldn't uh, unlink or detach quote-unquote faith or beliefs from works or how we actually live. And this is where we see the problem of hypocrisy, where we say, oh, I have all these beliefs, but then you find out someone has been hiding a scandal, has been hiding an affair, has been hiding embezzling. Um, that that shows that maybe they really don't believe the things they thought they believed. Hmm. If we believe certain things to be true, uh, especially related to those big questions of life, hmm. isn't it going to really affect our marriage, our friendships, how we show forgiveness to others? Um Whenever people question my Christian faith or the Christian faith in general, um, I do want them to point out where we're acting hypocritically, mm-hmm. because that means maybe we don't really believe our own beliefs. Mm. Wow. Nijay, we're, we're, tell me what you think about this. I, I read at one point a philosopher by, by the name of Mary Midgley. She's a very well-known uh, philosopher. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure if she 
kind of what, what tradition she finds herself in. But she had this image, this illustration that was really helpful for me. She said, we, we often treat our philosophy of life or our beliefs a lot like we treat our pipes in our home. And that is that we usually don't pay attention to them until there's a problem. And that is there's water you know, in the, in the, in the kitchen. And they were like, well, we probably should pay attention to our, our, our pipes at this stage. What is the role that faith plays in actually desiring to want to have good beliefs? Like, shouldn't our love for God, our love for, for Jesus actually push us to want to believe rightly and have right beliefs? Yeah, you know, I you're going to notice, AJ, that I watch a lot of TV, so I'm going to bring in The Good Place here. Love it. The TV show The Good Place, one of the reasons I think the first couple seasons were so popular is because it actually pointed out how relevant philosophy is for real life. It's using kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of doing it, but man, I don't know how many Christian theologians and philosophers I know just got tickled by this TV show because finally their existence has been justified. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and that's precisely what it is. You know, it's interesting. I, I mentioned my wife's a youth pastor and an awesome one at that. And she's working with a lot of kids who who grew up in the church. Their parents are Christians. Their parents are faithful Christians. But, you know, Portland, Oregon, uh, not a whole lot of, you know, Christian faith in the culture and so my wife has to be kind of selling them Christianity as a philosophy of life. Mm. These kids, teenagers, middle schoolers, high schoolers, they're not interested in normal Christian chatter. They really need to know, does this make a difference mm. in life? Um, they're not asking, where am I going to go? Maybe they're asking, where am I going when I, when I die? But they're teenagers, so they're really right, just right. wanting to know what the snacks are for the day. But, um, you know, she's... She's teaching worldview and philosophy in ways that are uh, digestible for young people. And this is what I never got growing up. My parents, who are Hindus, I love them and they taught me so much, but I wasn't taught a philosophy of life. And Christian faith and the way beliefs work into that, um, they are uh, really about shaping our life towards something in the world. And um, so when you talk about those pipes, yeah, you know, N.T. Wright talks about it like spectacles. Right. There's something you see through, not something you look at. Mm-hmm. So A.J. wears spectacles and, you know, he hasn't been blessed with LASIK eye surgery like I've had. Not yet. But, um, you know, you look through the spectacles and you don't notice them until there's, you know, a you know, some some smudge on it or something like that. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm looking through spectacles. Probably you've lived with spectacles long enough. They're just natural to you. Yes. Uh, and and that's just the way it is. And this happens, uh, AJ, with churches when you know we start to feel like maybe there's a new pastor, and you know they're saying things that rub you the wrong way. Then you start to realize, okay, or you move to another place, you go to a different church, you realize, wow, my church from this town is very different than my church from this town. You start to realize there are different approaches to Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Niji, somebody pointed this out to me. I I had I actually think it was maybe Larry Hurtado in one of his commentaries on Mark. I can't remember who it was, but at some point I came across that in Mark's gospel, um, in particular, in Mark's gospel, the first person to declare the most orthodox true statement about Jesus, here is the Son of God, is a demon. <laughs> and that the demons actually declare right beliefs before the disciples ever do. That there's something to be said about the fact that even the demonic has orthodox beliefs, and that at the end, that is not the end. That can't be the end. 
the end is not merely the restatement. The demons know who Jesus is. James says that. The demons know and shudder all the more. It is not, the point is not merely right beliefs, but beliefs and faith that work hand in hand. That to love God and have faith in God goes hand in hand with a desire to want to know God for who God actually is. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I remember there being um, some C.S. Lewis novel that I was told about where um, it's talking about, you know, believers maybe on another planet or something where knowing too much actually hurts you. The, you know, knowing too much of all the details of everything actually hurts you and leaves no room for relation, relational faith and relationship. And it was, you know, these people who had uh, an overabundance of kind of factual knowledge that had the least amount of faith. Um, I think the relationship with God, yes, it's messy and complicated. I don't think it's any more complicated than a human relationship Yeah. in the sense that you can know all the stuff and yet there's got to be trust. And I've, you know, in my book on Paul and the language of faith, I talk about it like dancing and in dancing, there is – first of all, I'm not a great dancer, so it's just an analogy. True. But in, <laughs> but in dancing, there is trust in the sense that you're anticipating what the other person's doing, mm. right? You're trusting them to do it correctly. You're trusting where they're going to go next based on your knowledge of them. So no matter how much you know about the person you're dancing with, you're expecting what they're doing, and they're expecting what you're doing, and it all happens in motion, and so, no matter how well you know somebody, there's still that element of connecting yourself to them, trusting them, trusting that they're not going to let you down. All of that is a leap. But what's funny is in the Bible, you get all these people who don't know much, and yet they're commended, like the blind man. He says, I don't, I don't know where there's a sinner. I don't know this. I don't know that. But I was blind, and now I see. And when I go, you know, and we'll talk about this later on, but... When I have these struggles with faith and struggles with – my biggest struggles are with the fact that there are so many good people on both sides of an issue. And I go back to that blind man who just said, I don't know a whole lot, but there's this great thing that Jesus did for me, the mm-hmm. end. That's awesome. Uh, we, 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 of course, have a word for somebody who, who knows everything about somebody. Uh, we have a word for somebody who knows everything about somebody, but doesn't know that somebody. And uh, and we call that a stalker, don't we? Uh, a stalker is someone who knows everything about somebody, but doesn't actually know him. So I guess the goal here is actually to know God. Imagine that. Beautiful. We're going to talk about deconstruction next time, aren't we? We are. And hopefully, we're going to get to talk about what this idea is, how, the role that deconstruction plays in the life of faith. Uh, and we're going to hopefully get a chance to iron out a little bit more how how actually sometimes rethinking our beliefs can actually lead us to deeper faith. Nijay, it's been a joy to be with you today. Yeah, absolutely, AJ. Thanks.